In this episode, we're going to go through part two of the book, Essentialism. We're going to talk about eliminating and creating a buffer. Welcome to the Delve Into Money podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. This is the personal finance podcast where we attempt to demystify money by reviewing books and applying what we learn to our own financial journeys. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you're having a great week. Today, we're talking about the book Essentialism. If you did not listen to part one, I would encourage you to go listen to that part one. First, we talk about what is essentialism. We're not going to dive into that again. And we talk about using good discernment and exploring different options and how that applies to your investing and budgeting life. If you're interested in those and have not listened, please go back there before listening to this episode. If you listen to that episode and you're joining us on this part two, please, please, please go rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening to podcasts. It is extremely helpful to see those ratings for people. Uh, I've heard time and again already that the good rating and reviews that I have are the reason that someone chose to listen to the episodes and is now a fan of the podcast. So just as a quick recap, We talk about essentialism is the disciplined and systematic approach for determining where our highest point of contribution lies, then making execution of those things almost effortless. So when we talk about essentialism as it relates to money, we had three takeaways. The first was we need to use discernment to know what choices to make with our money We talked about this in part one, so go back and listen to that for those details. Today, we're going to talk about takeaways number two and three. Takeaway number two is we need to eliminate the things that stop us from achieving our money goals. And then number three, we need to create buffer in our lives so that we can make better financial decisions overall. Takeaway number two, we so often default to yes, to go to dinner, to help a friend out, to continuing the subscription service, to the salesman's upsell. All of these yeses are adding no value to our life. We need to eliminate or uncommit and cut our losses from things that aren't bringing us value. So in a, in my married life with Samantha, we have gone through different phases. We have gone through phases where we were saying yes to everything that was around us. During these phases, it was great because we had a lot of opportunities. We were involved in a lot of things that maybe we otherwise wouldn't have been. But then we've also had phases of life where we said no to thing after thing. I think that there is a balance in the way that we go about this, but I think For the most part, many of us, our default tends to be yes. We say and default to yes in places that we should not default to to yes. And 
We should default to yes when it comes to friendships, right? We want to be a part of our friends' lives. We want to build those deep relationships. But we should not default to yes in things that have the potential to hurt us. So today, on this point, I want to talk about we want to uncommit or we want to cut our losses on things that we know aren't bringing us value. And I think that we all naturally have those things that we think about. And so let's dig in to what this means for us personally and then what this means financially. I want to start off talking about the sunk cost bias. And the sunk cost bias is our tendency to continue an endeavor once an investment of money, effort, or time has been made. This is our unwillingness to cut our losses when something isn't working out. We know it's not working out, but because we've already spent the money, we tell ourselves that we need to see it through to the end. This is something that happens to us every single day. There is, I'm sure, just off of the top of your head, you can think of things that you've continued just because you thought, I've already invested the time, I've already invested the money, you want to continue and finish it out. The reality is, if the money is gone, the money is gone. If the time is gone, the time is gone. By investing and continue to go and spend your money and time on things that are not bringing value, you're just wasting away. A good example of this would be, say there's a class that you've paid for that you thought was going to bring you a lot of value that would help you in your career. Well, now you're three of six weeks in and you realize that this class is worthless. You already know all this stuff. You review the syllabus for the future. You see there's nothing new in that either. You would just be better off not going to that class, not doing the homework, not doing whatever's associated with that class. Some other commitment traps that we fall into, and as we go through these, I'm sure you're going to be thinking of all the things, all the negative things. So just take a break. Don't freak out. Don't go too far. Uh, We'll talk about different applications, uh, how this hurts us financially, and how we can help. Another one is what they call the endowment effect. It's the tendency to undervalue things that aren't ours and overvalue things that we already own. So an example of this is if there was, say there's a ticket to a concert. And if, if we did not have this ticket to this concert, but we wanted to go, but they said they weren't our favorite band. They were just something you're interested in, but they'd paid a hundred dollars for this ticket. It's very unlikely that you're going to want to pay that hundred dollars. Maybe you think if I can get them for 75, it'll be a good deal. But if you're the one that actually owns or has the ticket, your thinking is, well, I should be able to get 125. This is just because I spent 100 on it. I'm putting in effort to getting this thing sold. So I need to get a little bit more out of this. It's our tendency when we have something in our hand that we own, we have the history with that thing. We have the time investment with that thing. And we think that that thing is more valuable than it truly is. Another commitment trap that we have is we have a fear of waste. So we keep things, we keep personal items that we otherwise are providing us with no value. We keep them because we're being fearful of being wasteful. 
Status quo bias is also another bias. It's doing something the way that we've always done it, and we are going to continue doing it that way because that's just the way it's been done, right? So we made that commitment to doing it a specific way, and we're not going to stop doing it that way because that's just what's been done. We also have just FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? When we are worried about missing something that might provide value, that can sometimes lead to us getting involved or doing things that we otherwise would not have because we have that FOMO. Financial applications to this uh, specific uncommitment. It's easy to fear making the wrong financial decisions. We need to get over that fear. We need to acknowledge that fear. When it comes to uncommitting from something, if we have a budget system that is not working, we need to be willing to start over. We need to be willing to cut our losses in whatever we're doing and find a better way. This goes back to last week where we need to do some research. We need to figure out what are better options. We need to try a lot of different options and we need to find the right option. Be willing to cut the losses with the system that's not working, that's too cumbersome, that's too stressful for you and your family. A great place that these biases come into play is when you talk about trading. Now, I talked about last week, I'm not a trader. I'm never going to be a trader. I don't necessarily encourage people to be a trader, but they show all the time that in trading, people will be worried about, say, a gain. Maybe they're worried that something is going to pull back that they've made money, so they'll cut their winners short and they'll let their losses run because they don't want to take the loss that they have, where what you should actually do is the exact opposite. We should let our winners continue to run, and we should cut any losses that we have. And the biggest pitfall is people struggle with this, and this is why we cannot typically win when we're trading. Another financial application of this is, is especially when it comes to our money, we have all of these biases that that are inherent in us is we need to reevaluate the decisions we're making. We need to quit doing the status quo just because it's the status quo. A good way to do this is to keep a decision journal. A decision journal is going to help you record the decision you're making so that when you get six months, a year down the road, you can look and see, was that decision good? You can look at your reasons for the decision. You can look at your assumption and did all those things come out to play like you thought they did. Sometimes your assumptions are wrong and you can learn from those wrong assumptions. Other times you made the right assumptions, but the outcome is different or the outcome is the same. All of these things help us learn how to make better decisions in the future. So decision journals are a great way to make better financial decisions. This is especially important if you're trading, if you're getting in and out of stocks, you need to know when and why you made that decision because otherwise you're just pure speculation, shot in the dark, shot at the dartboard, whatever you want to say, 
So some questions that you can ask yourself in this scenario, it says, what can you get rid of that you've held on to because of the endowment effect? What is not bringing you value right now that you've held on to that you've overvalued in the past? Because if it's not bringing you value and it's taking up space, it's just a waste. So let's get rid of those things that you've held on to because of endowment effect. Question number two, what are you doing because you've always done it that way? We need to reevaluate those things, confirm they're still ideal, confirm that they're still the way to go. Third question, what legacy budget expenses are you holding on to? Are there things in your budget that you just continue to pay for that are the recurring charges just because you've paid for them in the past? Are you using the service? Is it bringing you value today? If it's bringing you value, great. I don't have any problem with you holding on to something that's bringing you value. But if you have a Netflix subscription and you've not watched it in six months, it's about time you cancel that subscription. So then the fourth question I want to ask, what is more wasteful, holding on to clutter or cleaning to reset your consumption patterns? Sometimes we hold on to things that are that are not useful because we're worried that we're going to waste in the future. We're worried about the waste that we've created. So maybe we buy things to be prepared for the future. Maybe it's something that was useful in its time, but is no longer useful, but we don't want to waste it. We don't want to seem like we haven't used it to its fullest. But the reality is holding on of these things causes us to hold on to more and more. Whereas if we could declutter, if we could clean things out, we'd have the potential, the option to reset our consumption patterns. So those are four questions that are food for thought. Take maybe a second, pause, think about those. Maybe if you need to go back and re-listen to them, you can do that right now. Uh, But we're going to jump to takeaway three. Takeaway number three. All of our lives are full with more ball games, with more projects, with more work, with more leisure. We hardly leave ourselves any buffer. To practice essentialism, we need to leave more buffer. 50% more buffer or time than we expect to spend. This applies financially with your emergency fund, your investing, asset allocation, and in your side hustle, job, or business. I don't think that anyone needs to be told this. I don't think that this is something that is going to be a surprise to anyone, but we all have too much on our plates. We fill our days at work. We fill our days personally. Every gap gets filled with something. The reality is, is we need to create more buffer in our lives or else we are going to burn out. So one of the principles of essentialism is that we need to estimate 50% more time than expected and create that buffer for ourselves. So if something is going to take you an hour, we need to put it as an hour and a half on the calendar. This is a great concept when we talk about time blocking our days. Uh, I personally try and time block my calendar. I will put the tasks that I have for that day on my calendar so that if something comes up, 
I can look at that. If I'm trying to schedule a meeting, I can see, oh, well, if I take this hour meeting today, I'm going to have to move this specific task to another time later in the day, tomorrow, next week. You can see the practical application of how it's actually going to affect the tasks you're trying to complete. And a great practice in this is if you think a task is going to take an hour, put it for an hour and 30. Sometimes things will take less, but the majority of time things take longer than you think. This is also great because it helps you see what is actually taking your time, what's taking longer. This principle of estimating 50% more time or 50% more money is great for a real estate or renovation project. We, with my parents, had done a flip house and we did a renovation of our own house. And I guarantee you that that 50% estimate of more time was not even enough. We should have doubled or tripled the time that we thought it was going to take. Money-wise, we did pretty well on money, but you want to build the buffer. You don't want to go into one of those projects thinking that I'm going to spend $10,000 and buy something based off that assumption and then come out spending twenty. We want to estimate at ten. Bump up our estimate to 15, and if the numbers still work at 15 or work at 20, we go ahead. You want to build that buffer in because if you don't build that buffer in, you're going to take losses and you're going to potentially hurt yourself financially. So, five questions that we can ask that are uh, talking about buffer that we can ask it says, What risks do you face on this project? Question number two What is the worst case scenario? Question number three, what would the social effects of this be? Question number four, what would the financial impact be? Question number five, how can you invest to reduce risk or strengthen financial or social resilience? These five questions are great questions to ask that will help us build the proper buffer into a project. What risk do you face? That first question. By acknowledging the risks, you can plan for those risks. You can create the additional time or money that's needed to cover for those risks. What is the worst case scenario? By thinking through the worst case scenario, while it might not come true, you at least know what your exposure is on a specific project, on a specific idea, um, even personal things you can do that with. What were the social effects? This is, you know, a a little bit different type question, but absolutely still valuable. Uh, Number four, what is the financial impact going to be? We want to get as detailed as possible for what's reasonable in the situation. And then number five, how can we invest to reduce risk or strengthen financial or social resilience? So when it comes to, say, a real estate project, If there's ways that we can reduce risk, if we can pay a tiny bit more to get a tighter timeline, that may be worth it in the long run. So we want to think through those scenarios and what that looks like. Another piece of creating buffer is we want to celebrate our wins. We want to celebrate the small wins. A quote from this part of the book, it says, The way of the non-essentialists is to go big on everything. 
to try and do it all, have it all, fix it all. The non-essentialist operates under the false logic that the more he strives, the more he will achieve. But the reality is, the more we reach for the stars, the harder it is to get ourselves off the ground. I am a fan of big goals, but with those big goals, we need to create small actions, small consistent actions, and we need to celebrate that progress. We talk about this in the Tiny Habits episode. I will link to that in the show notes, but we need to celebrate those small wins, to keep us excited, to keep us moving forward. One thing that he talked about, and this is really the reason I wanted to mention this, is he talks about focus on the minimum viable progress. So an example that was given is when you have a presentation that you know is six weeks out, but say it's already been scheduled, spend 10 minutes preparing the minimum viable PowerPoint So that if stuff comes up between now and the time of the event, that you already have something to start off of and you're not starting from scratch. It assures that no matter what happens, you're already prepared for the meeting for the day. You can apply this to a lot of different things. It's just that idea of getting started on something early. It also is visually rewarding to see that progress, to see that success. So let's talk about the financial application of this concept of creating buffer. The first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about creating an emergency fund. An emergency fund is three to six months of your expenses put into an account and not touched. This is going to reduce stress and this is going to help you in the case of a job loss. So the question then becomes, where do I keep this emergency fund? I personally think that liquid cash, something that you can get to rather easily and quickly, is the way to go. We have ours split um, in a few different ways. Is We have liquid cash in a high yield savings account, which is a little bit embarrassing to call it high yield, but we use, uh, we have an account with M1 Finance right now. That is 1% interest. We've used Discover in the past. Uh, They're a little bit under 1% now, but definitely still better than nothing. But none of this is going to make you rich. We also have some cash now in Block FI stable coins. They are currently providing 7.5% interest. This is stuff that's a little bit over and above. Maybe what our first couple months needs are. Uh, We don't put a lot in there, but we put enough that, hey, 7.5% is a great return on money. You're going to have to evaluate if that's something that is good for you. We also, while it's less traditional, I do view uh, Roth IRA contributions and HSA contributions as part of our emergency fund. Because if worse came to worse, we could take the contributions out of our Roth. You can't take the growth but you could take contributions and use that for an emergency fund. HSA, you can do the same thing. HSA is where you have your medical expenses and you can use those receipts to pull that money out and you get, by using an HSA, those receipts for medical expenses are tax-free. And we are holding on to those receipts because you can hold on to them and use them at any point in the future But if worse came to worse, we could use those receipts 
But our hope is, is that by investing the maximum into the HSA, not pulling those receipts, we're allowing that money to compound. And then 30 years down the road, 20 years down the road, we can start using those receipts to be money to live off of because we've had those expenses. We've just not pulled the money out. And then you also see some people, we don't do this and I don't recommend this. Some people will have HELOCs or other uh, loans against their portfolio that they use as an emergency fund. I personally, like I said, we do three to six months between the liquid cash and the stable coins. And then I just view the Roth IRA contributions and HSA as an over and above benefit that's potentially there to help. So another budgeting concept that we've used and that I think is good for a lot of different people is we create a buffer account in our budget. We don't have anything that we monthly use that account for, but by funding that account, say $100 a month, this allows for things that you were unaware of or did not remember being expenses that don't fit into other areas of your budget. This buffer account is great to help you not have to dip into an emergency fund. We use YNAB, which again, I can provide a link to YNAB in the show notes, but we use YNAB. You can get, I think a month, additional month free if you go through my affiliate link. So I will provide that. But YNAB is also great because you can build buffers into different accounts and then it makes you physically have to move the money from one to another and it provides this visual confirmation of you taking over funds from one place and moving them to another. That's kind of the third thing is we will sometimes like if we have accounts with say for, for example gas, well we were budgeting a certain amount say $300 a month for gas when gas was $3 a gallon. But as gas went down and was less expensive, we kept funding that same amount because we knew eventually gas could get back to that high level. So we have overfunded our gas account. So now we have two months, maybe even three months of gas uh, in that account. And we're okay with that. We just keep funding it to the same level. But what that means is, is if we have a expense that is for our car, like when I was in recently in a car accident and we had to get some repairs done, that overage, that overfunding of that gas account allowed us to use some of those funds as well as funds saved in our car repair maintenance or car maintenance uh, account. We used a combination of those two to pay for that car repair. So those are three different things to think about in budgeting. We want to have an emergency fund. We want to potentially create a buffer account in our budget. And then we want to allow for overfunding in some accounts if there's some future potential spending down the road. So the the other buffer concept where we want to create buffer in our financial lives is we want to talk about investing. I've not done an episode on this, but Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money book is a great book, and it is a book that everyone should read. So I would go get that now if I were you. I will put a link in the show notes. But in that book, he talks about understanding risk, and he talks about how 
we in general do not understand the risks that we're taking on. It's extremely hard to grasp all the risks that are out there and all the risks that we're taking on. So when this comes to investing, we need to understand our asset allocations. There are a lot of different theories out there. Uh, used to, there would be a 60-40 stock bond split uh, type allocation, and that was kind of the, the way uh, people were, were pushed into that. But with bonds being so low in the last 20 plus years, there have been a lot of people that have gone towards more stocks in their portfolio than bonds, some even going far as doing 100% stocks, 0% bonds. There are a few ways to think about asset allocations and preface this first by saying asset allocation is going to depend on your time in the market. So if you are 20 years old, you've potentially got 45 years before you need the money. But if you are 60 years old, you're going to need the money in five years. So your allocation is going to be different. If you're the young person, you can overcome any ups and downs in the stock market. But if you're the older person, you're going to need more bonds so that you have less risk, less exposure to the overall up and downs of the market. Traditionally, when you think about it, more risks translates into higher returns. So your time horizon is going to determine what allocations you should be comfortable with. A traditional way of going about this is they take 100 minus your age to get your stock allocation. So if you're 20 years old, 100 minus 20, you should be 80% stocks, 20% bonds. With the lower bond rates that we've talked about, some have started using 110 or 120 as the number. So you take 120 minus 20 if you're 20 years old and you're 100% stocks. If you're 30, you take 120 minus 30 and you're 90% stocks, 10% bonds. And those are your options. They also have target date funds where say you are going to retire, say you're 20 today is 2021. So you're going to retire in 2066. So you would look for a target date fund that is target date, say 2060 or 2070. You would choose that target date fund and they would do the stock bond split for you. You need to do research and figure out what their splits are. And as you age, their splits would change. So today it may be 90-10 stock to bond, but 20 years from now it may be 70-30 stock to bond or 60-40 stock to bond, whatever that may look like. So those are great options for people that don't want to have to think about it even in the future, don't want to have to do any work related. But with those, you do have higher fees. So you want to look at those fees. You want to compare them to your other options and determine what's best for you. Talking about different people in the industry, different recommendations that are also popular recommendations. Warren Buffett wrote that after he passes, the trustee of his wife's inheritance has been told to put 90% of her money into stocks 
and 10% into short-term government bonds. Benjamin Graham, one of the godfathers of investing, said 75% stocks, 25% bonds. So again, there's a lot of opinions out there. Do your research, which we talked about in the first one. Be willing to look at all your options, but then make a decision. When you look at the failure rate of a portfolio, a 60-40 portfolio uh, had a 0% failure rate in an analysis done that I found on Investopedia. I will provide that link. Uh, 100 stocks, 0% bond had a 3.5%. And then 30% stock, 70% bonds had a 12.8%. So you can see as you change your allocations, you're taking on more or less risk. Uh, and there's risk of, of not having enough, but there's also there's risk of being too risky, of going too heavy one way, but there's also a risk of being too risk averse. So we want to analyze that. Again, I'll provide some resources on that. So that wraps up this episode. We talked about eliminating commitments. We talked about what that means for your financial lives. We want to create and take decision journals. We want to avoid being on the wrong side of trades. And then we talked about creating a buffer in your financial life, how that applies to your budgeting with emergency funds and buffer accounts. And we talked about investing in your asset allocations. If you have questions about the content in this episode, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I would love to have a conversation. Thank you so much for stopping by today and listening to this episode of Delve Into Money. We love for you to subscribe and share this podcast if you know someone who could gain value from the content. Until next week, remember healthy financial decisions are intentional financial decisions. Intentional decisions this week lead to a healthy financial future. Start today and see you next week.